Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. This is an encore presentation, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about Chapo Guzman, Joaquin Guzman, and how I came about representing him, and this horrible fact I had to tell him after a couple of times meeting him. I didn't want to have to do it, but I had no choice, and you're going to hear the incredible story for the first time. It's 2014, and I'm contacted by the family of an inmate who was cooperating with the government against the Sinaloa cartel. His name was Margarito Flores. This is all public record now. He was cooperating in Chicago in a federal case, or out of there, federal cases there and other places in the country, for many years by the time he came to find me. All he wanted from me, all the family wanted, it wasn't even him I heard from the family, is they wanted me to simply review some of the matters at the end of the the case before he was sentenced. This, again, was in 2014. I had a very minor role in the case, and I met with the client once and spoke to him a number of times. Nice guy. He was a a twin, an identical twin. I I don't know that he knew that he was identical, but when I saw the brother they were identical. And that was something that uh, was interesting to me because I have identical twins. Now, Margarito was alleged to be a very significant cooperator for the Sinaloa cartel. And while Chapo Guzman was allegedly the leader of the cartel, he was in Mexico at this time. He was in prison. And no one ever expected him to be extradited to America at the time. You have to remember back then, he's doing God knows how many years in the Mexican prison. He was a very high profile prisoner in Mexico. Nobody thought for a second that the Mexicans would ever let them, let him out of their sight. But the client, as I said, who I was representing now, Margarita, was cooperating along with his twin brother, Pedro. They were originally from Chicago, and they got involved dealing drugs for the Sinaloa cartel in Chicago, but eventually fled to Mexico as the story went, according to the government, to avoid being arrested here. They both were very high up, as I said, in the cartel, and according to the government, they had major access to El Chapo, and they were cooperating since like 2008 against the cartel members. And these were people that were already brought to America, the cartel members um, on extradition, and they all had pending cases. And all of this, again, is public record. But before they fled to Mexico to come to the U.S. to cooperate, they had made tapes, according to the government, of conversations between them and El Chapo. And some of these tapes made it into El Chapo's trial that when I represented him. And Margarito, my client, didn't testify, but Pedro, his brother, his twin, did testify during that case. But again, I wasn't involved when the cooperation started or even during 95% of it for Margarito Flores. I was just there at the very end regarding some sentencing issues. It really was nothing with nothing. But during the brief period I was representing Margarito, I spoke to the prosecutors in Chicago about El Chapo. Because obviously, he was the biggest fish in the Sinaloa cartel, according to the feds. And during my discussions with those Chicago federal prosecutors, I asked them if they expected that Chapo would ever be brought back here to face the many charges that he had here in multiple federal districts. And I guess my thinking was, well, if somehow Chapo gets brought here, if I'm representing someone, Margarito Flores, who would be testifying against him, that would disqualify me from ever representing Chapo. You can't represent a cooperator who's testifying against your own client. And that's the obvious conflict of interest. Now, I do remember thinking this because that's why 
I asked about it. Now, I don't didn't mean to be presumptuous that I thought that Chapa would ever want to hire me if he was ever brought here, you know, to face the charges here. But part of being a trial lawyer is that you really are delusional. I mean, tremendously delusional at times. And you just, everything crosses your mind. So I'm thinking, why am I getting involved in this very minor representation of Margarito Flores if it could cost me the chance to represent El Chapo down the line? This is what I'm thinking. This is like the biggest drug dealer in the history of the world, according to the government. And, you know, it might be something I'd be very interested in, I'm thinking. Again, this was a really remote possibility because Chapo was still in Mexico. The prosecutors here are telling me there's no way he's going to be brought here. And who the hell even knows whether the guy even, even knows who I am or would ever want me to represent him. So this was just so uh, pie in the sky. And, you know, I think the reason why the belief was that he wouldn't be brought here, Chapo, was that it would just be too much of a circus. He had escaped prison in Mexico. He was so high profile He's just too important to Mexico, and they would never let him out of their grasp. So I forgot about it, and Margarito Flores was sentenced to uh, sentenced about nine months later at the beginning of 2015. I wasn't even present at the sentence. I was just giving advice from afar. But here's the interesting part about this. The government was very concerned that not only were the Flores twins in danger due to their cooperation against the Sinaloa cartel, of which... Obviously, Joaquin Guzman, according to them, headed, but they were afraid that the Flores twins' lawyers' lives were in danger. They felt that we could get killed just for representing them, which is really crazy. I, I had never heard of anything like this before as a defense lawyer, and really serious precautions were taken. Now, this is public record now, but... When lawyers were making your, when you make your notice of appearance into a federal case, you file what's called a notice of appearance. <clears throat> it's a form which announces you're representing so and so in a case, and it's filed publicly. It can be found in the paper court files, but it can also be found in the online docket sheet for the case, which anyone could have access to. <clears throat> you can find out who's representing who in any federal case. So in this case, not only were none of the lawyers told to put their notices of appearance in for either Flores' brother, the government told us not to. But when the lawyers had to appear in court, the press was told not to print the names of the lawyers. The courtroom sketch artists could not draw the lawyers' faces. The courtroom stenographer, who was writing up the transcript, could not include the lawyers' names on the transcript. The lawyers needed to be hidden completely. I've never had that happen in a case before or after my brief representation of Margarito Flores, but it was chilling, as you can imagine. My initial thought was, you know, is this like crazy overkill? You know, you tell me. When it was reported in 2009 that the Flores brothers were co cooperating against Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel, their father, who was also a drug dealer, went back to Mexico, and he was warned not to go because of his son's cooperation. But in his mind, I suppose, he was a drug dealer. He wasn't cooperating, and I guess that's what he thought, that he'd be safe. So he felt that he had nothing to worry about, and he was very, very wrong. When he arrived in Mexico, he was kidnapped, and on his car's windshield was a note, and the note said, shut up or we'll send you his head. That was obviously a message to the twins to keep their mouth shut. 
Now, this is the government's story. This is what I was told. It's very chilling. The father of the Flores twins was never heard from again. So that was why no one was allowed to find out that I was representing Margarito Flores. And I didn't think anything about it. He was sentenced at the beginning of 2015, probably for a couple of years. And my representation, as I said, was a secret, which was good for me because I wanted to live. And then all of a sudden, in early 2017, the world hears that Joaquin Guzman is being extradited to Brooklyn to face federal criminal charges there. This is January of 2017. And I presume that he already had defense lawyers lined up because, you know, he's Joaquin Guzman and the government claims that he's just so powerful. Well, lo and behold, he's represented by public defenders, federal defenders at his initial court appearance. But I presumed he'd have, you know, his family find him top New York attorneys and he would switch to them. And I mean, this is like the most legendary criminal or so the media had led us to believe. I mean, this is El Chapo for God's sake, right? Well, still he's got his public defenders, but then out of the blue, a few weeks later, in January still, a call comes after he arrives in New York, and I received the call from Jerry Shargell. Now, this is what I mentioned last week or a couple of weeks ago who he was, my old mentor, my boss, my friend, my father in this business. The federal public defenders were giving Chapo names. They were suggesting names of private counsel for him, and they had given Chapo our names. And Chapo obviously wanted private lawyers at this point. Now, Jerry and I had worked many big cases together when I was a very young lawyer, so it wasn't all that surprising that we would be going in together. We had done, you know, as I said, many high-profile cases. Jerry had represented Sammy Gravano during the Gotti Sr. trials uh, before he flipped, became a cooperator, and other countless other big cases. And me, I was a younger, angrier version of Jerry with many high-profile trials in my own right. So we were curious about Chapo. That was our, our thinking at the time. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, this was the most legendary drug dealer, according to the media, to the government. So we were like, hell, let's go visit him. And there was only one problem that I had that I didn't tell anybody at this point. I had represented one of the cooperators responsible for Chapo being indicted, for Chapo being extradited to America, and could be responsible for Chapo spending the rest of his life in jail. That was Margarito Flores. I didn't tell Jerry at the beginning, and I didn't want to tell Chapo because, <laughs> for obvious reasons, but I really had no choice. Because of the conflict of interest that I had, it wouldn't be easy for me to be able to represent Chapo after my brief representation of Margarito Flores. And it would come out publicly, obviously, at last. I wouldn't be able to keep this quiet if I was going to try to come into this case. But I would have to agree not to cross-examine Margarito if, in fact, the government decided to use him as a witness against Chapo at the trial. I couldn't use anything that I learned from Margarito Flores to help in the cross-examination if somebody else was going to do it, assuming that the government was even going to call Margarito Flores. And... You know, during this upcoming meeting that I was about to have with Chapo, my thought was, well, if, if Chapo didn't like me, it's not like every person that interviews me wants to hire me as his lawyer. If he didn't like me, if he decided that he wasn't interested in moving forward with me as his lawyer, I would just never tell him about Margarito Flores, about my representation of him. I mean, I didn't want to die. 
I didn't know who this guy was, Chapo. I didn't know him at all. And I figured he might get very, very, very pissed. After all, there was a reason why the government would not let the lawyers, and I, again, was not the only lawyer for Flores. There was a reason why they didn't want our names getting out. Because Chapo, according to the government, kills the attorneys of his enemies. So I figured, well, I'll just keep my mouth shut and let's just see how the first meeting goes. You know, most likely, he's not going to like me. I mean, although I am incredibly charming and funny, attractive, all that, dress well, maybe he just decided I wasn't his cup of tea and it would never have to come out. So Jerry and I went to go see him and we needed an interpreter because my Spanish is awful. I only took four years in high school and another year in college and I basically can say, estoy muy cansado. That means I'm very tired. That's, that's pretty much the limit of my Spanish. Oh, and also, hola, que tal? I said that to Chapo 4,000 times, and we both laughed every time I said it because that was the beginning and end of my Spanish to him every time I went to see him. So we had to go to the 10 South floor of the MCC, the Metropolitan Correctional Center, which is like the worst prison in New York, <clears throat> maybe in America. It's now been closed for months after Jeff Epstein killed himself there. But 10 South was the floor where they housed the terrorists. It's the worst of the worst. It's solitary confinement. Inmates do not get to see other inmates there. You can't meet your client in an attorney-client room on 10 South. There are none. The regular attorney-client meeting rooms in the MCC are just regular rooms. You walk into, they're on the, they were on the third floor, and there's just, you open up the door, there's a big table there, and you both sit at the table and you shoot the shit. <clears throat> on 10 South, it doesn't, doesn't have that. It's a special floor. You get brought into a tiny room to meet with clients. And as I said, unlike the regular attorney meeting rooms at the MCC, this one has glass in the middle of the room. You get put on one side, the inmate gets put on the other side, and then you are locked into that room. You can't get up and go to the bathroom because there are no bathrooms on that floor. <clears throat> There's no vending machines. You're stuck until you pound on the door and then the guards have to open it to let you out. And half the time they're either asleep, they're watching TV, they're eating breakfast, whatever the hell it is that uh, prison guards do. It's certainly not paying attention, I can tell you that. And Jeffrey Epstein can also tell you that if you could. Now, our side of the room is tiny because the room was split into two. One side is the inmate alone. The other side, the same size, is me stuffed in there with Jerry and our interpreter. <clears throat> so we were, you know, really, it was stuffed in there pretty good, and we were going to be there for three hours. Chapo comes in, and he looks friendly. I have to say, he had a hopeful face. He was in an orange jumpsuit, not a large guy, little guy, dark black hair, very dark eyes, and he didn't speak any English at all. But he had, this was a guy who's already been in jail for a month or two, I guess, in America. He wasn't allowed to have any conversations with any inmates. He only could speak to the uh, jailers, the guards, and God knows they probably didn't speak any Spanish. But he still appeared pretty calm when you consider that he was in a pretty disgusting situation there. And we start talking to him through the translator, which is a little bit it's a little bit uncomfortable because it's not a free-flowing conversation. Every sentence you say has to be translated. Then he responds in Spanish and has to get translated back. But it was very clear he was interested in meeting new lawyers, but he was not there to mess around. Now, I'm not going to go into what we discussed because that's privileged. But the entire time 
in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about Margarito Flores, my former client who's partly responsible for putting Chapo in this cage. <clears throat> and I also thought I have to tell Chapo at some point if this continues to work out. And it had gone pretty well. It was going pretty well. But I would only tell him if he was serious about hiring us. And I had no idea what his reaction would be. As I said, the government told me that he kills lawyers. And, you know, no one on the planet knew I represented one of the guys that put him in there. And there was a reason, as I said. The three hours with Chapo really flew by, is, is what I will say. We really hit it off. And in the first meeting, we learned a couple of things about each other, which delighted both of us. One was that we both had twins. We did. And that their birthdays were one day apart. True story. Oh, and the other thing that we had in common is we both had a massive love for guns. Massive. That's for another day. Anyway. I didn't tell him about my representation of Margarito Flores, not yet. I figured, you know, we'll set up another meeting and let's see how it goes. I knew I had to tell him, but I just was, I just was dreading it. So after that meeting, Jerry decided he didn't want to undertake the case with me because he was getting ready to retire. And this was just such a monster endeavor. And it really broke my heart in a way because since I stopped working for Jerry, in, I suppose, 1999. The last trial I did with him was in, in January of 1999. Uh, this is now 2017. And in 1999, I was a kid. I was just out of law school a few years. And now at this point, I'm a pretty good trial lawyer. And to be able to try a case like this with Jerry would have been not only the highlight of my career, but you know, maybe the highlight of my life. That's how important it was to me, and, and it really broke my heart, but I completely understood why Jerry at his age and all the miles he had put on doing this, he just didn't want to get involved with this. It's just, it's just too much. It was too much. So I went to go see Chapo the second time alone with the interpreter, and the Chapo always asked how Jerry was. I mean, for the next two years, every time I would see him, he'd tell me to say hi to Jerry. That's the kind of guy he was. Really. <laughs> believe it or not. So the three hours flew by again. That was the amount of time we were allowed to see him from 6 to 9 p.m. And I had a sense near the end of the second meeting that he perhaps wanted to hire me. And I felt I, I needed to let him know about Margarito Flores before he became too comfortable with me. Now, he's seeing dozens of lawyers. I still don't know whether he was going to hire me but I felt that I couldn't let it go any further without me telling him because I didn't want to waste his time. <clears throat> he may have just decided he wanted nothing to do with me because of that, and I had to spit it out. I, re I really didn't have a choice. So when he learned, as I thought, about Margarito Flores, he may just change his mind. And, you know, as I said, he may be pissed if I told him in the fifth or sixth meeting. So in the last 20 minutes or so of our meeting, I finally screwed up the courage and I told them this story, that a few years ago, I was contacted to represent someone <clears throat> who was cooperating with the government. Didn't give him any more details than that. And it was at the very end of his case, but I still agreed to represent him. The government would not let me put my name into the public record representing this man. They felt that the people that he was cooperating against were too violent and could kill not just the cooperating witness, but me and my family if they learned my identity, meaning the people that my client was cooperating against. 
the government, as I said, the Chapo, told me that they had uh, that, that the head of this group was so dangerous that he routinely killed lawyers, and oftentimes it was done to send a message to their clients who might want to cooperate. And that I couldn't tell anyone if I was representing this person. I had to keep it quiet. No one could find out. And I told Chapo, all of this was highly unusual. That in my entire career, this had never happened before or after. Never. And as I'm telling him this story, he's just sitting there. He's just transfixed listening to the story. Eyes were just burning on me. And it was like I was telling like a bedtime story. He was interested. And then I had to start telling him, the bad part. And I finally said, the client that I was representing, who the government warned me about, was cooperating against you. And you were the person the government said would kill me if you learned this information. And I'm taking a chance with you by telling you this. I'm also asking that you take a chance with me to hire me and trust me with your life, because right now I'm trusting you with my life and the life of my family. And he just sat there with his mouth open a little bit at the end of this. He hadn't said a word during the, during the entire story, which was about 20 minutes or so. He just took it all in very calmly, listened, shook his head up and down at the end, was quiet. I looked at him right in the eyes. I didn't take my eyes off of him. And all he said was, thank you for telling me that. At that point, he told me that he wanted me to be the lead lawyer of his case. So it was a risk. It was a risk. But I had to do it. I had no choice ethically. I had to tell him. I could have not gone to see him. He never would have found out that I represented Margarito Flores. But I had to tell him. Now, I never told him at that time who the client was that was cooperating against him. He could have figured it out on his own. <clears throat> I didn't know. I didn't want to reveal the name until he officially hired me and the court was required to have a hearing, which would announce that conflict that I had previously previously represented Margarito Flores, who was now cooperating against the current hopeful client of mine, Chapo. At that point, it's called the Curcio hearing. The court, the judge in open court, requires the defendant, Chapo, to waive any conflict of interest in order for me to be able to be hired in the case. He basically has to understand that I can't cross-examine Margarito Flores if uh, the government decides to call him. And in fact, he did uh, make that waiver. And Margarito Flores, of course, was not called to testify against Chapo Guzman. But his twin was, Pedro, and the government, out of an abundance of caution, I don't know why, because I had never spoken to Pedro Flores, never had met him, required me to not to agree not to cross-examine him either. I guess they figured identical twins, twins, whatever, that their stories were the same, and me representing one was like representing the other. But that's how I came about to represent Chapo Guzman. It was a risk that I took, a real risk. Hopefully, in my mind, it was going to be worth the risk and he wasn't going to get angry. Again, everything I knew about him was based on what the government had told me and what I read in the media. I had no idea by me telling him this whether the government's concerns were real, that it could cost me my life. But I did. All's well that ends well. These are the kind of things that happen in the day-to-day of being a criminal defense lawyer. Probably doesn't sound a lot like your job, but this is, this is what it is. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Go to beyondthelegallimit.com. 
listen, send me feedback. You can email me, let me know what you think of the show, and if you have any topics you want me to go with. Thanks for listening.